Let us hear the gospel. Glory to thee, O Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found, uh, and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple. And began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please be seated. Actually, we're going to pray that prayer we pray right up front. Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, happy Palm Sunday, everybody. This is a great holiday. You know, when I was a kid, we used to go to the park and, and you know, Inevitably, when you're a kid, you collect leaves and you collect pine cones and whatever you can kind of get your hands on and you bring it home in, in stacks. I know my kids still do the same thing today, acorns, whatever, and they leave them in piles around the yard. And at some point, you feel like you outgrow that. But on today, you can get away with collecting up leaves and taking them home with you, and that's just fine. And of course, we do all this to commemorate the triumphal entry, uh, which we just read about. It's one of the most famous parades in history. And it's a good, convenient way to start Holy Week. But it also strikes me, and it strikes me this way a little bit every year, as a strange thing, because what we call triumphal, the triumphal entry, feels a bit off. Uh, the instructed readings had me stopping at the end of the uh, beginning of the parade kind of thing, and it stops short of when Jesus starts weeping, you know, uh, it feels less triumphant when you read the whole passage somehow, you know. I, I've been to a few parades in my day. I assume you all have too. This one feels a little different somehow. Parades always feel triumphant. That's kind of the point of having a parade. You only have the parade after you've won a victory of some sort, right? But the whole point of this holiday 
The whole point is that Jesus has come here to die. And yet we celebrate, just like the original disciples did, we wave palms and we sing Hosanna as if we don't know what's happening here. And, you know, I figured these people were cheering in ignorance. They didn't know, but it's like, what's our excuse, right? Um, and, you know, Jesus doesn't correct them for cheering. It wasn't wrong. And he tells the Pharisees if they were silent, the rocks would cry out. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't seem to share the joy in the same way. Jesus has a way of reigning on his own parade. In some ways, the most striking thing about Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is that his mood is sour. And we see that first in how he weeps over Jerusalem, but we also see it in the cleansing of the temple shortly after his arrival. Jesus is sad and angry, but I'm not feeling the joy, you know? This feels more like Jesus' terrible, no good, very bad day. Uh, And I mentioned the temple cleansing last week because I said it was a prime example of Jesus showing anger, and we were talking about anger, and it occurred to me this week that this ties in well, actually, with our current series. So this message is not so much a clean break from the Sermon on the Mount, it's more of a segue, uh, because I said last week, Jesus' anger is a good model for us. He's a good model in in all kinds of ways, And, and I said that the temple cleansing was maybe the clearest example, but I ran out of time to go into specifics. So I'm going to talk more about this event today because we all get angry, right? And and as we said last week, we typically don't handle anger well. And Jesus clearly cares what we do with our anger. And since we're so clueless, he kindly gives us a demonstration of how to do it. And he does it right on the heels of the triumphal entry, as if this is part of the parade is kind of how Luke's got it set up. So Palm Sunday leads directly into Jesus' most famous angry outburst. He is showing us what godly anger looks like. But at the end, his takeaway is unexpected. He reigns on his own parade, but he doesn't reign on everybody else's. Now, Luke here, along with Matthew, if you read his account, makes it sound like this happened directly after the triumphal entry, as if Jesus just charged right into the temple and did this thing. Mark's gospel clarifies it was actually the next day, but... What Luke is trying to emphasize is that it kind of was all on a all on a, all on a, in a direct line. That this was kind of the first thing on Jesus's to do list. Number one, arrive at Jerusalem. Number two, cleanse temple. That's kind of his his to do list, right? So he walks into town and goes more or less straight to the temple and starts driving people out. Luke's version, which we just read, his version of this event is actually pretty mild. Uh, The other three accounts are a bit more vivid. So I actually want us to turn to Mark's gospel today. I'm going to be focusing mostly on that because Mark includes a number of interesting details. In spite of being the shortest gospel, (laughs) he has a lot to say about this event. So you can turn with me to Mark 11. It's like uh, page 847 of your pew Bibles if you want to turn there with me. I'll skip the triumphal entry part. I want to just read what follows up on it. Starting in verse 11, and I'll go to verse 25. says, He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought, bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Okay. So we've been trained to think of Jesus as meek and mild, and last week's passage would seem to reinforce that concept, that idea, right? Jesus doesn't seem like the kind of guy who gets angry or approves of people who do. He's not the angry God of the Old Testament, some people would say, right? He's, he's warm fuzzies and kindness, and the children flock to him, and you kind of feel like maybe animals would too, like we have a Disney picture of Jesus, right? But something happened on Palm Sunday that set him off. Again, Luke and Matthew imply that this was nearly instantaneous. Mark says he got a good night's sleep first, but he did tour the temple initially. But you start to wonder if he must have woke up on the wrong side of the bed or something, because the excitement of the triumphal entry wore off really quickly. And Mark sandwiches this temple cleansing scene in between this other weird story about a fig tree, and that's not a mistake. Mark intentionally is weaving these two stories together, using one to shed light on the other. But last week we saw Jesus, very early in his ministry, warning us, right, to avoid anger. Almost at all costs, he made it sound like, right? He drew this direct line from anger to insults to murder and hellfire. It's a slippery slope. And we concluded that Jesus is not an angry young man. Anger is not a core part of his personality. He does not lose his temper in the sense of losing control. He's not a slave to his anger. Now, I tried putting this into practice this week, and I thought that I did pretty good on Wednesday because I drove with Georgia to JFK Airport in Queens to pick up Carol. And then we made a detour through Manhattan. In the van, mind you... And sat in traffic, surrounded by New Yorkers. We got through the tunnel. We spent forever in New Jersey and let the record show that I never once lost my cool. And all that really meant is that now I'm due to snap at any moment. So consider yourselves, <laughs> consider yourselves warned. But Jesus is patient enough to drive through Manhattan or Jerusalem, for that matter. And yet here... Jesus gets angry, and he gets angry twice in one morning. Like, what the heck happened here? I mean, granted, this is a high-stress week for Jesus, we know that, but it, it seems like the high of Palm Sunday evaporated instantaneously. 
Jesus, our perfect role model, model of, of all things, and yet this is kind of surprising to us. So what happened that morning that got him so animated? Well, first off, it was this stupid fig tree, right? On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Tell me something, was there ever an unhappier bit of plant life in all of Scripture than this poor fig tree? How often... How many plants does God take the trouble to actually curse? I think about this, like he didn't even technically curse Adam and Eve's tree, right? So this seems kind of extreme, out of the blue. Jesus being God, of course, we do know, I, you know I, the winds and the waves obey him, right? So it's reasonable, I think, for Jesus as the creator to expect a fig tree to do its job, namely providing figs. And by that measure, I can totally relate to Jesus here. You know, nothing makes me angrier than when something doesn't work the way it should, like the transmission in my red car or so many other things. (laughs) Who could blame Jesus for getting angry at the fig tree? This is Jesus being hangry, right? The man just wants a snack. He's the creator, and this fig tree is dropping the ball here. All it has to do is provide a little snack. Except it was not the season for figs. One can't help but think that maybe Jesus should have known that. You don't have to be omniscient to know these things. You know, I planted a fig tree last year, and I'm new to this, but I'm not looking for figs on it yet. I know that much. Besides which, it probably gets too much shade where I planted it. I have no idea if I can expect figs this year at all. But figs are a fairly common thing in Israel. And if Mark knows the fig season, I'm thinking probably Jesus did too. Some may say that the the leaves indicated that there might be fruit anyway. And that maybe Jesus got his hopes up because he's figuring, oh, the leaves are, are sprouting. But I've looked this up on Wikipedia and I know that fig trees do not drop their leaves unless they're in a region where they get frost. There ain't a whole heck of a lot of frost happening in Jerusalem. Therefore, leaves don't typically fall. Fig trees always have leaves. That doesn't really prove a whole lot. So, why get angry at a tree for not bearing fruit out of season? That's kind of strange. I'd hate to think what Jesus would do to my ornamental plum tree that only grows flowers, you know? But Jesus curses this tree, and Mark is careful to point out that the disciples heard it. I assume this was intentional. He had to know that they were in earshot, right? And they got to be thinking at this point, all right, guys, just give him space. Maybe a visit to the temple will cheer him up. Maybe someone will be selling figs there, even better, you know? I'll buy him some. So they get to the temple. It says, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Okay, then. There's no lead up. 
No obvious thing that instigates this. There's no spark. No word is spoken. Jesus just walks right into the temple and makes a scene. So imagine being the disciples again at this point. You have to be asking, like, do we stop him? Should we help? Should we just stand here and watch? I'm thinking that was probably the most likely course they took. And Jesus does several violent things here. Yes, violent. He's acting like riot police. All he's missing is a horse and tear gas. You look at the verbs. It says he drives out the salesman. And not just the salesman, also the customers. Anyone buying and selling. All of you, out. And then he overturns the tables of the money changers. Can you imagine this mess? Trying to pick up all these scattered coins that are mingled all over the place. And you have you know, probably fist fights between the vendors just from the cleanup. Because how do you know whose is whose? And then he also overturns the stools of the pigeon salesman. And that just seems spiteful, honestly. Like, you don't even think of sitting down. You know, like... And then he proceeds to block all traffic of all stuff, it says in verse 16. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Well, that seems a little over the top. I know he warned against anger, but Jesus seems a little bit ticked off here. What was going on in the temple? Why were these merchants here? Well, we know that this was a major holiday week. This is Passover, and Jerusalem would be full of -of out-of-towners, including pilgrims throughout the empire. And if you're coming from as far away as like the Italian peninsula or something, not everyone could conveniently bring a sacrifice from home, right? So it's easier to buy something here. That's natural enough. Uh, It gave you a lot less to carry on your trip. But that whole element had opened the door to abuses, Mark specifies that Jesus went after pigeon salesmen. Now, why is that? Why would anybody be selling pigeons? I guess some people keep them as pets. But uh, pigeons were permissible sacrifices in the Old Testament, but they were permissible if you were poor, according to Leviticus 12 and 5. But they are not meant to be smart bargains for the rest of us. Pigeons are not fancy, but they are cheap. That's not rocket science. The flying rat can be found on any corner of any city in the U.S. to this day. They're not classy birds, but God, in his mercy, allowed them as a sacrifice so that poor people could participate in worship. But the sense you get is that these guys are not accommodating the poor. They're making worship into something cheap and transactional. It's kind of like buying Easter flowers for your wife from the discount rack by the checkout on Easter morning. I've done it. I probably end up doing it again this year. But nothing says thinking of you like a last-minute pickup, right? (laughs) And you all laugh because you've all done it and because it's tacky and we all know it is. Growing up in Philly, I, I lived not far from the boulevard, Roosevelt Boulevard, and you would see guys at all seasons, even in the cold, out there selling roses on Roosevelt Boulevard at rush hour. This happens every day on Route 1, and they do that so that businessmen can apologize to their wives without even getting out of the car. See? That's what buying the pigeon in the temple is like. 
This is not giving the Lord your best. You're giving him the leftovers. Whatever is left over after paying for your boat fare or feeding your donkeys, which is the equivalent of paying for gas, right? Uh, hotel rooms, meals, guided tours of Jerusalem, uh, trinkets for the kids when you get home. After all that spending, you get to the temple and you buy the discount sacrifice. The two for a dollar pigeons. The roses on the boulevard. It cheapens the whole experience. These guys are essentially enabling lazy worship. They're helping people to phone it in, and they're making money in the process. Well, Jesus also goes after the money changers. Now, why would that be? This was perverse on yet another level. You see, this was, again, this is the busy week in Jerusalem. It's one of the three big festivals. So every corner of the empire was going to be represented. You would have Jews from the diaspora, but you would also have faithful Gentiles and even some curious tourists. But they all had to pay a temple tax. Now that sounds really bad. That was an actual Old Testament regulation. You paid a certain tax. But every foreigner who entered the temple would come naturally with their own coins from home. And these foreign coins were considered profane. You can't spend common money here. You can only spend godly money, worthy money. And once upon a time, the Jews had minted their very own coins for this purpose. If you go back in history to the Maccabean era, uh, that's what they were doing. They were minting their own temple coins for this very purpose. But under Rome, they had lost this privilege, right? They couldn't manufacture temple coins without being considered in rebellion. Minting your own currency is not considered a great thing. But at this point in history, the city of Tyre was minting their own coins. They had blessing from Rome and they were only accepting at the temple Tyrian shekels. That was the only acceptable currency in the temple. Now, I'm a coin nerd, a numismatist, if you will. So coin details interest me. Uh, Jake is also a, a budding coin hobbyist. I understand Lila enjoys <coughs> coins as well. But true coin nerds know that every detail on a coin is symbolic of something. Uh, everything on there is meant to give honor to important people or important ideas, right? So most American coins honor either a president or in the old days, they would honor Lady Liberty, so the concept of liberty, right? These Tyrian shekels, they featured a false god, the Phoenician god, Melkart. The Greeks equated him with Hercules. But the Jews mockingly called him Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. Familiar? Why would these coins featuring Beelzebub be acceptable at the temple? Well, the answer is simple. The Tyrian shekel had a higher silver content than any other coin in the empire. It's a simple question of value. Now you add on to that the interest that the money changers are charging to exchange your profane money for the acceptable money with Beelzebub. And you realize this was a lucrative little shop that these guys had set up. Jerusalem, especially the temple, has become more of a money pit than Disney World at this point. They get you coming and they get you going. 
So by the time you paid all your expenses just to get to Jerusalem, and now you get to the temple, and you, maybe you hire a tour guide because they used to do that, uh, you exchange your money, you buy a pigeon or two, and you pay your temple tax, and now, after all this, you're a visitor. Are you walking away with a sense of reverence, or do you walk out feeling like you've been fleeced? If you're a visiting Gentile, you're new to the faith, are you going home with reverence for the true God of Israel, or do you feel like all these dirtbags took advantage of you? Now, I've been to Jerusalem. It's a beautiful city. It's full of history. But you still get this feeling today. It's kind of embedded in the culture, because every holy site in Israel feels like a tourist trap. Everybody's selling something. Every church, every shrine is a place to buy religious trinkets and tokens and postcards. You can buy bottles of water from the Jordan, you know, and sand from the desert where Jesus was tempted or whatever. Old city Jerusalem was memorable mostly for the aggressive merchants. And if you enjoy haggling, it's actually kind of fun. It would have been paradise for my Italian grandmother, but holy? I don't know. I wasn't feeling it. I was just a teenager, but I honestly felt disillusioned. I felt like Christ was more present in my church at home than any one of these holy sites. Martin Luther felt this way when he went to Rome as a young man. He found endless religious artifacts for sale and sort of pay-as-you-go holy sites, not to mention brothels for priests and indulgence salesmen, and like no wonder he went home disillusioned. That's why Jesus is angry. The holy city has become a tourist trap. And in essence, what it's doing, it's doing more to drive a wedge between God and man. You consider this, that Jesus, Jesus was a good Jew, right? The best, right? That means he came to Jerusalem for all these festivals ever since he was a kid. That would mean he would know all the hotels, he would know all the restaurants, he knew where to find good parking in Jerusalem, right? But that also means that this is probably not the first time he's seen this. In all likelihood, he has been patiently putting up with this scene for 33 years. So this doesn't come in a vacuum. Georgia pointed out to me something very interesting, a promise that God made back in Exodus 34. In that chapter, he commanded all the Israelite men to be in Jerusalem for the three major festivals. You had to be there for Passover, you had to be there for Pentecost, and you had to be there in the fall for the Feast of Tabernacles. But the promise he makes is this, and I'd never noticed this. He says, three times in the year shall all your men appear before the Lord. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear. God essentially promises that if you come to Jerusalem to worship, you don't need a house sitter. Your wife and your kids will be safe if you leave them. No one will steal your crops or rob your house or burn your barns or move your fence. No one's going to touch a thing. And in fact, they won't even want to. That's what the coveting angle is. God desired their presence at worship so much that he guaranteed the safety of their lands. As the PCA puts it, he freed them from all worldly cares. <laughs> so that for just a few days, they could set their minds on heavenly things. No squatters will come in. You're not going to lose anything. Just come and worship. He's removing one of the biggest mental barriers to worship. 
But now Jesus walks into Jerusalem and finds squatters right in his father's living room. They're so thick in the temple courtyard, you can barely see the temple itself. And 99% of the activity in the temple revolves around money. This is not only distracting. It is inhospitable, and it will drive people away from the God who made them. They are making Jesus' dad look bad. Now, do you see why Jesus is angry? I don't even like to see my father insulted, you know. This is not about Jesus having a bad day, and he's not losing his temper, not in the sense that he lost his uh, composure or control. He's not losing control, he's taking control. So there's a difference here. And the scene produces two contrasting responses. It says, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So the temple higher-ups fear him, but the crowds are astonished. And the funny thing is they're not astonished by his behavior. They're astonished by his teaching. Jesus, as always, uses scripture to support his actions. He quotes from Isaiah 56 to demonstrate that God has always had a heart for world missions. And he quotes from Jeremiah 7. Uh, Jeremiah had been sent to the temple to prophesy against the Jews coming in. Uh, Jeremiah was warning them not to place their faith in the temple as if this building is going to save them. And he accuses them of practicing idolatry, then showing up at temple, being one way at home and another way in church. You know anybody like that? God, through Jeremiah, warned them to mend their ways and he threatened to destroy the temple. And in that day, the original temple was destroyed and the people were ultimately exiled. It was not an empty threat then. And it's not an empty threat now from Jesus. And Jerusalem was going to learn this the hard way just a few years later in 70 AD. But by citing those passages, Jesus is saying the Father is angry. The Father cares about all the lost, not just the Jews. And the temple is not going to save them. Rome is going to destroy it. And the Jews will be scattered again, all because the temple had become a den of robbers, a house full of fakers. Phonies who live evil lives for six days and then act pious at church, who think that the temple or church can save them. These are heavy warnings and heavy teachings. So no wonder the crowds were astonished. Well, all right, in the wake of this temple incident, let's call it, Jesus heads back to the hotel in Bethany, and then the next morning he revisits this fig tree situation. It says, evening came, they went out of the city, And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. I just want to say, first of all, Peter's outbursts never get old. (laughs) Jesus, check out the fig tree. That's crazy. You cursed it and it died. Yeah. 
What's the deal with the fig tree? Well, the stories are linked. Uh, The fig tree has become a symbol of the temple. That's Mark's point here. It's become a, a symbol of Jerusalem as a whole. On its own, the fig tree story would be kind of weird because, yeah, the fig tree didn't technically do anything wrong, but it's an illustration of Israel in Jesus's time and particularly of their temple worship. The fig tree looked good, but it was bearing no fruit. It wasn't doing what it was made to do. And likewise, Israel had become an unfruitful tree. It had all the pomp and appearance of a holy nation, but it was short on true piety and holiness. Looks aren't everything, especially when it comes to religion. Israel is not a shining light anymore. It's more like a spectacle. It's corrupt. It's gaudy. It's not bearing godly fruit. And God has little use for fruitless trees. Just as the fig tree was cursed by Jesus and withered, so will the temple in all Judea very soon wither under God's judgment. And if you point out that figs were out of season, that's kind of the point. So was Israel. Their time was coming to an end. Now, I've always liked Palm Sunday. I guess a sermon like this could ruin that. Uh... I like playing with palm fronds as much as the next guy. It just strikes me that God's people have a way of cheering at the wrong times, like applauding in the middle of a funeral, right? You can't help but feel the excitement of the crowd, but the guy in the middle of the party goes from weeping to rage. In John's gospel, he specifies that Jesus used a whip in the temple. So it's a very confusing holiday in some respects. What is it that makes Jesus angry? Jesus gets angry when his father's honor has been insulted. This is not about him. Jesus said in John 6, he said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If Jesus is angry, it's for the father's honor, not his own. Now, later this same week, Jesus will be betrayed, cursed, mocked, beaten, unjustly condemned by two courts, abandoned and denied by his friends and crucified by a foreign military force, all while his own people mock and revile him, and yet Jesus will never once lose his temper. He only snaps when his father has been insulted. And one of the worst ways to insult the father is to make worship cheap and easy and yet build walls between God and the people who seek him. That makes Jesus angry because he came to bring God and his people together we will sometimes laugh at seeker-sensitive churches, you know. I know it's like a whole movement, but churches that are so eager to please visitors that they come across as desperate, honestly. And there can certainly be problems with that approach. But I just want to tell you something. Jesus has very little patience for people who drive seekers away, who leave them confused and disillusioned and make it harder for them to see God. That's what Israel had become in Jesus' time. It grieved him and it made him angry. So he wept and he broke things. What makes Jesus angry is people who claim to represent his father, but who in practice keep people away from him, who make God's house inhospitable and who make God's grace into something cheap. Jerusalem had become a cesspool of false piety in Jesus' day, and I think he was just fed up. And unlike most of us, Jesus had every reason to be angry. So Jesus doesn't start Holy Week in a very good mood, but 
Beloved, we don't have to imitate Jesus in that way. Uh, this is one of those occasions where WWJD, what would Jesus do? That doesn't really cut it here because we're not called to do everything exactly like Jesus. We don't need to spend today weeping and we are not obligated to make a scene by cracking a whip in church, thankfully. And we don't need to curse the nearest fruit tree. Jesus ends this episode in Mark by giving his disciples two commands in those closing verses. He says to have faith and be forgiving. Our orders from Jesus in the wake of Palm Sunday, our takeaway points are not to weep and be angry. What he wants us to take out of this is faith and forgiveness. Faith in God to answer prayer and forgiveness so that our prayers will not be hindered. You'll notice that the prayer portion is taken as a given in both cases. Now, that may not seem like the most obvious takeaway from the first Palm Sunday scenes here, but nevertheless, Jesus does not primarily call for us to share in his frustrations, but rather to live out what he taught us way back in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically the passage we read last week, when he told us to avoid anger and be reconciled with each other so that our worship would not be distracted or worse, hypocritical. Jesus doesn't primarily want you to get mad. He wants you to pray and have faith and forgive. The point is not to fixate on what's wrong. The point is to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's Jesus' message on Palm Sunday. Perhaps the most encouraging thing, I think, in either of the readings that we did this morning is the one that we read in Luke's account when Jesus refused to rebuke his disciples for worshiping him. He said, if they don't do it, the rocks are going to do it. Someone has to celebrate. And yes, there's a lot of ignorance in this scene. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't understand Jesus' mission. They didn't know that he was there to die for their sins. And I bet most of them didn't know why he was weeping or why he flew into a rage. But he doesn't rain on their parade because they got the main thing right. They were focused on Jesus and they knew that he was worth celebrating. They were welcoming the king, even if they didn't fully understand him. And if that's all we can do this Palm Sunday, Jesus is okay with that. So let's welcome the king. Let's do that so that the stones won't have to do it for us. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we again confess that we seldom get angry for holy reasons and we even when we have justifiable reasons, we, we typically slip into sin, Lord. We thank you that Jesus was a perfect example even of anger, Lord. We do pray that you would help us to be angry about the things that you get angry about. But Lord, we pray that you would teach us not to obsess over that, Lord, and that rather we would focus our eyes not on everything that's wrong. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, Lord on the king who has arrived. Help us to welcome him, Lord. Lord, be with us this week as we celebrate these events. Be glorified in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures.
Go. <laughs>